Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Our guest tonight is Joe Medjuk, best known in the business as a producer associated for decades with Ivan Reitman on films from Stripes to Heavy Metal, Ghostbusters, Private Parts, Up in the Air, Hitchcock, and Draft Day, just to name a few. He's a former film journalist, a professor, all-around lover of classic film. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Stephen. So let's go back to the real early days when you were at Tyke. Um, did you was were you part of a film-going family? Uh, first of all, I'm probably older than most of your listeners. Um, when I was young, say from grade one, six years old on, we still didn't have television where I grew up. I grew up in the east coast of Canada. And there were two movie theaters in town. And every Saturday, I would go to both theaters with a bunch of my friends. And in fact, this started when I was probably about six years old, when I was in grade one, and continued to. I left you know, in the city when I was 18. Um, we would go on Saturday morning, one of the theaters showed double bills, usually of Westerns, with maybe, if we were lucky, a Three Stooges cartoon in between. And the other theater showed a single movie. It was the most serious one, more serious one. And we would go to one theater, run out the back door, jump a fence, and run through a couple of blocks away to go to the other theater. So I would see at least two and maybe three movies every Saturday. And it cost a dime, and popcorn also cost a dime. <laughs> yes, that that was a while ago. Um, uh, that would have been about just you know about nineteen forty, starting about nineteen forty nine. Uh, we, we and we didn't have television until nineteen fifty six. Really? So I'm, that's Sherbrooke, Newfoundland. No, no, oh. no it's oh. Fredericton, New Brunswick. Fredericton, Fredericton, New Brunswick. New Brunswick. Yes. So that would be yeah. considered the boonies of Canada. No, it was considered, huh? a, it was a capital city. It had a university, it had about 15,000 people. When I was there, it was probably considered a rather sophisticated place. I mean, there were only like three really big cities, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver in those days. Right. So, yes, it was a smaller city, but it was the capital city. It was the home of the provincial university, the University of New Brunswick. So, no, it was considered, it was a very middle-class city. Everybody oh. worked for the government or the university. And you, did you end up, let's see, you said you stayed there till you were 18. So where did That's you end correct. up going to university? I first went to university at McGill University in Montreal. And that was in 1961. And that's where I really, I mean, I saw many Hollywood films when I was in Fredericton. But in Montreal in 1961 was like going to film school when there were no film schools, because uh, the films from Paris showed in Montreal before they showed in New York. And it was also the era when you had, you know, the British uh, kitchen sink dramas, you had, you know, Antonioni and Fellini, and they all showed in Montreal. It was a very sophisticated film going on uh, city. And at the university, there was a film society, which I immediately joined. And it was very, um, 
uh, what's the word I, I can think of? It was very ambitious. It showed a regular series of 12 movies a year, which was sort of historical important films and recent RD films. But then it started, we started at, it started adding two other series, one called the Series de C, which would show double bills of Godard movies and things like that, and a silent film series. And I quickly joined the film society and helped work on the silent film series. And I read every book on film I could find, which in those days was about five books. Very quickly, things were changing. <laughs> but, you know, I'm serious. You could read the two books by Eisenstein. You could read Arthur Knight's The Liveliest Art. There were one or two other books, and that was about it. No, no, I, I completely understand that. Uh, when I started writing for Cine Fantastique in uh, Chicago in 74, uh, it, was, it started as a little fanzine, but uh, there was no internet, obviously. There was no database. I was interviewing uh, a screenwriter named Ted Sherdeman, who had written a World War II movie called Hell to Eternity with Jeffrey Hunter. Right. Some of the first movies to deal with the Japanese, uh, you know, the, the internment camps, and then of course, fighting on Saipan. And during the interview, he told me he had also written them, the great science fiction movie about the big ants. And if I had a database, I would have known that, but I had no idea he had written them. Well, we couldn't even find out who directed movies. The very first, uh, as Film Society, the Film Society of Canada, there was a group of film societies, published a book about uh, where you could find films to show, like who distributed them. And they listed the, the directors. But generally, before um, Andrew Saris's book, The American Cinema, came out, it was very, you know, you wouldn't know who directed a movie unless you happen to find an ad for that exact movie. And uh, somewhere in the early 60s, one of the TV guidebooks came out and listed direct directors. But until then, it hadn't happened. So it was very difficult to figure out, you know, if you were interested in directors, who, what they'd done. Sure. And as you say, what anyone had done. It was much more, uh, information was much more hard to come by, except by firsthand, you know, watching a movie and writing down all the credits. Or you know, there's, there's, there's so much preservation work, but my fear is that modern audiences, young, young people today, are not respecting classic film going all the way back. Do you think that's true or do you think that there is interest? I have no idea. I don't know that many young people. Uh, you know, when I talk, I, I, you know, I say it was always that way. You know, people always complain about young people. When we, it, the film society was split into, film society seemed to be two kinds of people. Older people who were nostalgic and knew about old films and recent ones, and young people in universities who mainly wanted to see French New Wave films. But also, you know, uh, I mean, when we showed 12 movies at the film society, we would always show like a silent movie, something like Citizen Kane, you know, right up through, um, you know, whatever the most recent film we could find in 16 millimeter was. I remember we once showed a film in 35, which was really difficult for us. We had to bring in projectors and and it was La Dolce Vida, like about two years after it had opened. <laughs> oh, uh, the, the kids love that one. Uh, 
Well, they weren't, you know, we weren't kids. We were 18 and up. It's the university. Well, Actually, at McGill, some of the younger kids were 16. But uh, it was cheap. You know, it was cheap entertainment. We sold 12 films for $2.50. Uh, oh, I know. Series. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot the first year I joined. And, and that's when I became active in it by the second year and began to, like, became an autodidact about film. There were there were no film courses in Canada, as far as I know, uh, in 1961. It's interesting. I started that you, go on. And I was just going to say, it's interesting that you bring up Citizen Kane. I was looking at the AFI list of the top 100 movies made of all time. And invariably, Citizen Kane sits at the very top of it. Do you think that's justified? I don't know. Taste change, you know. The British Film Institute does a, a survey every 10 years of what the greatest films are. And around the time I started watching films, everyone said Citizen Kane. 10 years before that, they'd all said The Battleship Potemkin, uh, I think. You know, 10 years later, they said, well, I think Kane may have lasted for twice. But then they started saying the, ru the rules of the game. And then they said Vertigo. And then last year, they said uh, Jean Dillman, which most people had never heard of. <laughs> Including me. <laughs> well, you, you haven't already. I actually saw it at Cannes, believe it or not, the year it opened. Uh, uh, what was that so, title again? Oh, uh, sorry, I can't say it while in France, but it's something like Jean Dillman, and then it gives her address, you know, where she lives. <laughs> but it, it's, no, it's partly because they've let academics vote. But... Uh, I mean, it's sad. The woman who made it, Chantal Ackerman, and I'm a big fan of hers, actually committed suicide before that, oh. before this happened, uh, because she'd had a new film come out and everyone had written bad things about it or something. Uh, I, I, I have a tendency to put Godfather up at the very top, but that's just my taste. Yeah, no, it's everyone's taste is different. Everybody's taste is different. So you're, you're in uh, Montreal going to school. Is that where you met Ivan? No, no. Uh, I went to, I graduated from McGill. I went to Toronto to do graduate work at the University of Toronto to get an MA in English, and then hopefully go on and get a PhD and become a college professor. And I, in the summer of 1966, I went there in 65. And after my first year, when I was writing my MA, we still had to write a dissertation in those days for an MA. And what, writing, and what was your dissertation on? It was about John Osborne. It was about 10 years after uh, Look Back in Anger had come out. And, and at that time, he was still writing good plays. About the time I wrote my dissertation, he got very right wing and the plays got bad. <laughs> uh, but ignoring that, I... Uh, uh, I got to meet University of Toronto. My teachers were Marsha McLuhan, Robertson Davies. I mean, it was, I didn't study with, with um, Northrop Fry, which other friends of mine think I was crazy not to have. So it was an eye opening for me to be in Toronto. And in 1966, I got a letter from a friend who'd been in the film society who said, we're starting a film magazine called Take One. Will you be the Toronto correspondent? It was a much funnier letter than that, but I'm, I'm trying not to waste your time. Um, and I said, sure. So I began for the first time in my life, really writing. And that somehow led to me doing 
things in radio in Canada in, in, for the CBC. And actually on a TV show called Saturday Night at the Movies, just like your program. Uh, oh, I forgot. Owie Yost, the father of the writer Graham Yost, the writer, producer, director Graham Yost. Right. Uh, who wrote Speed and now is doing uh, Slow Horses and many other TV things. Uh, Graham's father, that's how I met Graham, because he said, hey, I'm son of Owie. And his father, Owie Yost, had this program on Ontario television, which was like PBS for Ontario, Saturday night at the movies. And he showed classic movies and interviewed people and did a really good job. And he was very enthusiastic. So I did always show a couple of times. I was doing some radio things for the CBC. Uh, I don't know how I got, partly because Toronto is the center, or was, I don't know if it still was, of English speaking culture in Canada. So what I discovered when I got to Toronto was people I thought were national, uh, of national importance were really that because they were in Toronto. If you were the, if you were like Scott Young, Neil Young's father, and you were a sports writer in a Toronto paper, you could be on Hockey Night in Canada. If you were in Winnipeg, you wouldn't be in Hockey Night in Canada, <laughs> which is the most important program in Canada. Of course, of course, the the, the country based on hockey. Um, but you you were going to tell me how you met Ivan. Okay, so I'm writing for this magazine. I'm teaching at the. I'm studying and beginning to teach at the University of Toronto. And a guy who was writing for the magazine, and I won't go into the details, it's a great story, phoned me and said, look, there's a kid here. He was at the University of uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, which is about 60 miles from Toronto. He said, there's a kid here who's made a, a student film. It's really good. It's not like most student films. We should write a review of it. And I said, sure, you know, but can I see the film? If we're going to give space to it. And so I got a phone call from this Kid Ivan Reitman, who came up to my apartment and I brought a 16 millimeter projector back from the university because I was screening films. I was giving a course in the extension department and screening films by then. Um, and we showed his film, which was called Orientation, on the wall of my apartment. And I said, yeah, we should review this. It's really good. And Ivan and I just became friends and we started doing stuff together. And uh, I was how would, still an academic. How would, you, how would you describe him in those days? Not very different than he was later. He was very enthusiastic, very confident. Uh, he made a very good film as a student film, unlike most student films. Uh, I mean, it was a narrative film with humor. It was called Orientation. It starred Danny Goldberg, who produced many of Ivan's movies. Oh, sure. He and Len Blum would write together, too, weren't yes, they? Yes, that's right. And But I don't think Len was involved in the movie. I'm not sure. I'm surprised he wasn't. And, um, you know, and the movie was got blown up to 35 millimeter and was distributed in Canada by 20th Century Fox, uh, along with a movie called John and Mary, which starred Dustin Hoffman and Mia Farrell. And uh, so Ivan, you know, began there. And then I won't go into the rest of his story, but he and I stayed in touch and we're friends. And uh, uh, so I'm going to put up another picture here. Um, okay. I'm going to put up. Um, uh, that's Stripes. That's Stripes. Exactly. So uh, on, on your resume, one yes. of your first credits as a producer, co-producer, associate producer is yes. Stripes. So uh, obviously Ivan had come out to California by then. Right. And where were you living? 
Okay, so I was in Toronto teaching. I was teaching film actually by then. And Ivan had stayed in touch. And I'm shortening this a lot. There was a lot of interplay with us between them. Uh, you can but, you can give us a little interplay. We have time. Well, yeah, you can edit this, right? Right. So it could go on. Um, Ivan wanted to make a movie. Ivan was in Montreal and he wanted to make a movie of the National Lampoon's uh, magazine. They'd done a special issue called the, the 1961, I think it was, or 1963 uh, high school yearbook. And Ivan wanted to make a movie of it. And uh, uh, he phoned, he just looked at the magazine and looked at the um, masthead and phoned them. And he talked to a guy named Maddie Simmons. And Maddie said, well, it says on your resume that you produced a Broadway show. But Ivan had been at McMaster, which was considered not as good as U of T in those days, University of Toronto. Meanwhile, his class, people around them were Marty Short, Dave Thomas, Eugene Levy, who was in the film club with Ivan, you know, and a magician named Doug Henning. And skipping a lot of Ivan's life at this point, or a little bit, a couple of years, he was working on a TV show and had Doug on as a guest and uh, said, uh, what are you doing? And Doug says, I want to do a, 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 a musical with magic. And Ivan said, great idea. Let's do it. And so Ivan helped produce it and put it together. He got a script by another friend named David Cronenberg. They got music by a guy named Howard Shore. These were all people in Toronto at the time. Uh, meanwhile, Ivan in his TV show had a warm-up act that was uh, done by Danny Aykroyd. So he did this show uh, in Toronto, at the big theater in Toronto, the Royal Alex, I believe. And it was pretty successful. And some guys from New York came down and saw it and said, this show isn't that good, but it's a great idea. Let's come to New York, we'll do the same kind of show, but we'll get better writers and better director, et cetera, et cetera. And they did this show called The Magic Show, which became a big hit with Doug Henning. And um, so Ivan meanwhile was back in Montreal, uh, working, at Cine working with Cinepix, I think he was a partner there. And he phones Maddie Simmons and Maddie says, I see on your resume, that you're, you've done a Broadway show. I don't want to do a movie yet, but I have these guys on the road. I want to bring the Broadway. Can you bring in the Broadway? And Ivan said, well, who are they? What do they do? And, and he discovered they were coming through Toronto to play a rock and roll club called the Elma Combo. And this was the, called the, the National Lampoon Show. And it consisted of Gilda Radner, John Belushi, Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, and Brian Doyle Murray. And at the time, Brian Doyle Murray might have been the most famous one. And Ivan said, yeah, these guys are great. I'll take this show to New York. And he did. And uh, I think I was an investor in it because I actually had a steady job, unlike most of my friends. And <laughs> I lived like they all did. I had like money. What, were, what I, was your steady job? I was teaching at the University of Toronto. Oh, OK. You're, you're a professor then. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't not never legally. I was a, a lecturer. I mean, Election time, but I, I don't. I was never in a tenure streak. I mean, might have been if I stuck around. In fact, I'll come to that. So, Ivan uh, did the, you know, did the National Lampoon show, and Maddie said, "Well, now you can do a movie," and and the movie turned out to be Animal House, 
I won't go into all the details of that. So Ivan found he was a, you know, a, had produced this major hit. And he discovered something that one of the producers uh, he met of the graduates said to him, he said, six weeks after my movie opened, my 16-year-old son, if he had Dustin Hoffman with him, could go into any studio in Hollywood and make as good a deal as I could. Because nobody gives a shit about producers. And Ivan discovered having produced Animal House and had a lot to do with the script and putting it together is people still wouldn't take his phone calls. Because he so wasn't he said, John Landis. That's right. And in fact, he told this story. It's funny. Um, uh, he really wanted to direct Animal House. And the young, the, the few young people at Universal said, well, there's another guy. He made a movie called Kentucky Fried Movie. And Ivan said, well, I made a movie called Cannibal Girls. And they looked at the two movies and they said, his shitty movie is better than your shitty movie. <laughs> so It's funny because I... Uh, last mu a couple months ago, I had David Zucker on yeah. talking about the beginning of Airplane with Kentucky right. Friend. They just did a book on the making of Airplane. A lot of that's right there. So that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, Ivan, you know, produced it on the ground. Uh, as he said, he he directed the dancing. And he, uh, uh, and he watched Landis direct. And he, he said later he learned things from Landis watching him. And he learned concentration mainly. Um, and uh, because before then, he'd always been a producer. You know, his producer hat was overstepping his director hat. Right. And um, so he came back and discovered that, you know, he made produced this hit movie and he really produced it. He was the guy whose idea it was, got it going, everything. And, you know, wrestled with the writers and said, as a producer, I get no respect. I better direct again. So he went back to, to he, Toronto and I'd gone to Paris for the summer, which I used to do every summer. It's great life being a university professor. And he made meatballs and everybody I knew had worked on it. Even students of mine were, had worked on it, but I was in Paris, so I didn't know anything about it. And I came back and he had this movie and the next spring, meatballs opened. And I went to the... You know, he invited me to the, the premiere in Toronto and I went there and he introduced me to this guy who was with him, Jeff Katzenberg. And while he was there, one day he came out of the shower in his hotel room and Katzenberg came in and he said, Ivan said, I got an idea for my next movie. Cheech and Chong joined the army. And Katzenberg said, sounds great to me. And Katzenberg had really nursed Meat Boss for Paramount and gotten Meat Boss for Paramount and nursed it around and I wasn't involved. I know a lot about the making of it and the remaking of it, but I won't go into that now. So getting back to your question, when Ivan introduced me to Katzenberg, he said, this is Joe Magic. He sort of taught me a lot, but he's a dilettante. And then he turned to me and said, when are you going to stop being a dilettante? <laughs> and after Meek Boss opened, he phoned me and said, look, do you want to come to Los Angeles and work for me? Work with me, is the way he put it. And he said, I said, yeah, I don't know. School year is just starting. You know, I, I'm having a good time. I just, my girlfriend is just, now my wife has just moved in with me. I like teaching. Uh, he said, well, no, look, it'll be great. I still remember him saying, he said, you don't understand what it's like. We'll have offices. We'll have secretaries. <laughs> and this seemed like a really big deal to us, to him at the time. He said, Danny, you'll have an office. You'll have an office. He said, it'll be great. You know, we'll have a good time. 
And so I, I said, look, I, I eventually said, I'll do it, but I can't do it. This was like in August. I said, I'm not free to next May. He said, fine, I'll wait. So in the meantime, he was coming to Toronto and we began working on stripes with Danny and Lenny in Toronto. And then the National Lampoon people came and said, we have this other magazine called Heavy Meadow and we want to make a film from it, you know? And Ivan said, sure, I can raise money in Canada for that. And so we were working on the scripts, Danny and Lenny mainly, were working on the scripts for Heavy Meadow and Stripes, which was supposed to start Cheech and Sean, while we were, while I was still in Toronto. And Ivan would fly up every so often and have meetings with us. And, you know, I, I would go to those meetings. I wouldn't go to meetings with just Danny and Lenny because they were the writers, not me. And I, I'd never done any of this before. Um, well, heavy, heavy metal yeah. is, if not the sexiest animated feature ever, it's right up there. And well, I, so. I put up, I put up Tarna simply yeah. because I was asked uh, a couple of weeks ago on my other podcast, we did a show about empowered women in Hollywood. Right. And I pointed out that Tarna was probably one of the first female superheroes in film. Uh, I know I know Sheena goes back to the 30s and 40s, but uh, how, how much involvement were you involved with uh, heavy metal? I was very involved. I uh, What happened was, uh, I mean, I was involved from the beginning. At the beginning, we had all these stories from Heavy Meadow and Meadow Her Law, and then we discovered the National Lampoon people didn't own the rights to them. So Danny and Lanny had to write two original stories had to write two original, three original stories, the, the, the arc story plus Tarna and plus uh, what became Harry Canyon. Um, and meanwhile, Michael Gross, who had been the uh, art director of the National Lampoon, came on to be a sort of overall art director of uh, Heavy Meadow, associate producer. And my friend who edited the film magazine, Peter Levinson, became another associate editor. I wasn't necessarily supposed to be really involved, but I ended up being very involved from the beginning to the end because what then happened while the film was being made, Ivan and Danny went to uh, Kentucky to make stripes. And I was the only one in Los Angeles sort of helping to coordinate the things. So I did what I thought, I created what I thought was a, a, uh, a new position called uh, what the hell did I call it? Project coordinator or something. Then I later discovered that's a real position that other people do, you know, actually do. But I was sort of just, we were making this up as if we went along. I'd never done, you know, a uh, uh, I'd never been, I'd never really produced a film before. I, I wasn't producing this one either. Michael and Peter were, and Ivan was. Ivan was the final say. And um, at one point, I flew to London to deal with some of the animators there, Michael and I. Uh, it was sort of fun for me to be able to do that. And we had a production company in Los Angeles with John Bruno doing the Tarnas story. We mainly had, we had producers in Canada. Gerald Potterton was the overall director, was a Canadian. He was in Montreal. So work was, it was very hard to coordinate. We had work going on all over the world. Poor Michael Gross was flying all over the world and they introduced American Airlines mileage right after he finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the other thing about uh, heavy metal 
is you get a really kick-ass soundtrack to go along with that yeah. movie. Well, what happened was uh, John Landis had introduced Ivan to Elmer Bernstein. Elmer had done the music for Meatballs and done very well. So Ivan, he was Ivan's guy at that point. So he did music and then we needed rock and roll music. It was called Heavy Metal. We thought we should get some, most of the music we got wasn't actually Heavy Metal, but it was rock music. And someone put us in touch with uh, Irving Azoff. And he started throwing these tracks at us. Um, and I remember I was walking around uh, the lot at, 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 in Burbank with, you know, guys from uh, Black Sabbath, you know, and uh, and um, it's a it's a it's it's a terrific album. It's uh, one of the yeah. great soundtrack albums. Plus, uh, of course, Elmer's score. Yeah, I, actually well, come, I, I come into this a little bit after this because I was assigned uh, and we met then. I was assigned as a unit publicist to do Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden right. Zone. Well, and what happened was, yeah, that was the same. That is a lead to that, which is that uh, Ivan and Mike Ovitz sold Heavy Metal to Columbia. I mean, it was being made independently, but while it was being made, we sold it to Columbia. So it went into the Columbia pipeline a bit, but they had no creative control except to complain about too much swearing in it and things like that. <laughs> Nudity. No, 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 they didn't complain about that, but they were very helpful. They were, uh, you know, because I didn't, you know, I, I was sort of the point man at the studio and I didn't know anything. And uh, I remember, you know, the post de department being really helpful. We mixed there. We did a lot of voices while we were doing strips. So meanwhile, Ivan was making stripes. Oh, Cheeks and Chong had fallen out. We rewrote it. I didn't, shouldn't say we. Danny and Lenny and Harold Ramis rewrote it for Bill Murray, who, of course, we didn't know would do it or not. Who, as usual, was putting it off, putting it off, you know, and finally showed up. I mean, was, we read some really good actors for the role, but I don't think it was ever going to happen without Bill. Oh, I mean, uh, talk about an actor perfectly cast. Yeah. Well, Harold really knew how to write for Bill. Once it stopped being written for, for Cheech and Chong, it was being written for Bill and Harold. You know, I mean, one of the ways to get Harold was to say, and, and you'll be in it. Uh, what did, did heavy metal do well? Here's what happened. Um, it made its money back for the studio for sure. I think it did. I'm getting it confused with Space Hunter a bit. It had a good opening. It did do well because it had a good first weekend and then dropped off a bit. It got terrible reviews in general. I mean, it was, you know, uh, it definitely wasn't aim aimed at critics. It um, It's lasted forever. I, I think Columbia made its money back right away. Not very much money came back to the original investors, but the, the but Columbia paid enough for it to pay everybody off. Oh, good. You know, like the original money put into it was paid off by Columbia, partly because of, it was in the early days of home video and, it had a it had a terrible home video deal, where the, the producers couldn't. Kind of, it's a kind of movie that I'm sure a lot of people went to very high. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that kind of movie. In fact, that. it probably would have done even better in the '60s during the, that period of Easy Rider, etc. Yeah. So I I worked for you guys on Space Hunter. Then I sold uh, um, Ivan and you guys to let me go cross country with the big props. We loaded him into that flatbed. I don't know if you remember this, 
but I was on the road for 63 days going to all the street fairs and conventions for um, Space Hunter. And then Ivan offered me the unit publicist job on Ghostbusters. And by then I wanted to do behind the scenes filmmaking. So I went to an EPK company instead. And the irony is that at the EPK company, we were assigned Ghostbusters. So I was able to be on the set. So let's let it's now the scarily enough, it's the 40th anniversary of Ghostbusters, that that great summer of 84. Uh, we don't have to go into too much depth, but uh, where did Ghostbusters come from? Oh, it came from Dan Aykroyd. I mean, Danny, this is the true story. Danny sent a script. I don't remember this script. I may never have read it. It's possible I even said, don't bother, this is impossible to make. And it's, you know, it was really long. It was different than the, and the Ghostbusters were like blue collar guys. And there were a lot of them. I mean, as well as our team, there were a lot of Ghostbusters. Ivan and Danny still fight. Ivan says part of it took place in, in outer space. And Danny says, no, no, it was another dimension. It wasn't outer space. But one day, I won't go into how this came about. Ivan and I were sitting, I still remember, we were sitting on his steps of his house. And he turned to me and said, what if the Ghostbusters were college professors? And I said, I get that. I used to be a college teaching professor. I can happen that one. So that's a great idea. And uh, he said, I'm going to have lunch with Danny. And he went to a famous lunch, now famous lunch, at Arts Deli. And they came back and they said, yeah, this, they said, what, what? They said to me, uh, do you think Harold would work on this? And I said, well, if you let him be in it, he will. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. And they said, well, we're going across. Harold had an office literally across the street from us. We were in, in, inside the studio. He was outside the studio across, I can't remember what the bullet, Rivers, Riverside, I think it is, in a, in a Warner Brothers building. And they said, eh, let's go over there and talk to Harold. And they came back and said, yeah, I think he's going to do it. And that was it. And about a week later, Ivan and I went into Frank Price's office and Ivan had the original script with them, which he never gave them, and said, I want to make this movie. It's going to have Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and Harold, and Harold, and Harold and Dan are going to write it, and I'm going to direct it. And Frank Price said, how much is it going to cost? And I still remember, Ivan picked the script up and went like this and said, "Feels like $25 million. Now, we didn't know anything. You know, we didn't know. We didn't, we'd never made a special effects movie. Ivan hadn't. I certainly hadn't. We didn't know anything about what a movie like this would cost, but it was pretty close. I think it ended up costing about 33. Ivan's, I used to claim it was 25, but it ended up more than that, but not a lot more. And Frank just said, can you get it out next June? Now this was April of 1983. Being complete idiots and not having made a big movie like this, we said, more than a year, of course we can get it out. <laughs> yeah, we can have it for June 1984, of course, not knowing anything. And Fortunately, um, the people working with Ivan at the time were myself and Michael Gross, because had, Ivan had thought we might make another animated film. So he'd hired Michael to hang around with me and try to find an animated project. And I won't go into what came up, but it ended up being not animated, Ghostbusters. And Michael's, a childhood friend of Michael's was Don Shea, who ran a magazine called Cinefix and Don knew all about special effects. So Michael began questioning 
done about special effects. And this, I think this is how it happened and discovered that uh, Richard Edlin wanted to leave ILM. I may not have this in the right order and set up his own shop. And Gary Martin, who was at uh, in post-production at Columbia, right. went to Richard and Richard did our movie and a movie called 2010 for MGM. And we both gave him enough money to set up shop. And he started Boss Films. And that was their first movies. And we would go down there and they'd be working on both films. And supposedly they weren't showing each of us the other one's film, but you know who had time to do that stuff anyway? And Richard did an amazing job, of course, because we had to do it fast. We kept- Oh yeah, and this, is, this is all before digital effects and There's everything. There's no digital effects in the movie. No, it's all, and it's, um, it's so funny. I, I obviously, um, I was there because I had the behind the scenes crew. So right. I was on the stage where the penthouse was. I was on the back lot, uh, the uh, the other lot where they built the front of the the front of the the. Uh, that was on the on the Columbia Ranch. Columbia Ranch lot where they blew up. They brought up the streets and, they, and with pneumatics and and then we went to New York and I have vivid memories with Len. Len was standing next to me when the, everybody's yelling Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters, that big crowd. And Len and I said, let's be in the scene. So we ran over to the crowd and Who we started Len, yelling Len Ghostbusters. Who, which Len? Len Blum. Len was there? I didn't remember that. Oh, well, yeah. That was, that was, that's when I discovered, excited, I better learn how to do this. I got 400 extras on the street, you know, and Ivan, you know, had the final say, but, and we had a very good uh, uh, production manager, um, uh, Jesus, I can't think of his name now. Sorry, Johnny. I'm... Leave this part out. I'll look it up in a minute. Well, you uh, had, uh, of course, you also had John DeCure, one of the great production designers. Yeah, we had John DeCure. Well, but John was a madman. I remember Gary Martin saying to me, when John gets down on his hands and knees and starts showing you things, hit him with a bat because it's going to cost you millions. Uh, <laughs> but no, DeCure was great. But DeCure was a madman. I mean, it was hard to control him. Um, but he did a great job. And we had uh, Laszlo Kovacs was the cameraman, and uh, I mean it was it was it's perceived of as just a total fun shoot. In reality, were there any issues that you had to deal with? There were issues. I mean, we almost lost, and we planned everything. We were rebuilding what fifty five Central Park West, the bottom of it on on the the um, uh, Columbia Ranch. Columbia Ranch, but. The people we had made the deal with suddenly pulled over the deal. I think it was a co-op. And they said, we don't want you guys around. But we somehow got through that. I mean, Johnny did most of that. Uh, not me, to be honest. I mean, that, you mean in New York? In New York? In New York, yeah. So in New York. But we were we were like on fire in New York. Ivan was really in the zone. The guys were great. Uh, we came out of New York two days ahead of schedule. Uh, just everything went great. And... Uh, uh, yes, there were, you know, it was every night, every day was a was a battle in some ways. But we were, you know, we, the guys, Danny and Harold and Bill and Rick, were, I'm, I'm older than them by a couple of years, but we felt like peers. You know, they were, they all knew each other. They were all peers. Uh, they were very generous with each other. Poor Sigourney, I mean, we thought of her, I think she doesn't like my saying this. We thought of her as being the adult in the crowd. <laughs> Oh, we have a growing up here. We have to start acting better. But I, but uh, you allowed me into one of the dailies rooms. I think yeah. it was in New York, 
and it was a series it was a series of um of scenes where somebody comes into the room and says the ghostbusters are here but because for some there was some controversy as to whether you could get the name so yeah. there was a series of people walking in saying the ghost blasters are here the ghost hunters are here yeah, we didn't know what we didn't know when we started was someone else owned the name Ghostbusters or had used it. Uh, a filmation had done, who were mainly an animation company, had done a half hour live action TV show with Forrest Tucker, someone else, Larry Storch, I think, and a, and a gorilla. And it was called Ghostbusters. And uh, we didn't know that. And so they weren't allowing us to use the name. And I think Frank Price, who actually, while the movie was being made, moved to Universal, which owned Filmation, helped us get the rights. The deal was we could both do a TV. They couldn't use it for a movie, but and either of us could use it. Both of us could use it for a TV show. And I, I don't know whether I probably money changed hands. I don't know. But what happened was I was on the street in New York when you were there, when there were 400 people yelling Ghostbusters. And in those days, you know, you went to self, you went to, um, coin-operated phones. You know, we didn't have cell phones. And I went to a phone on the street. I, you know, as a producer, you're allowed to push everyone out sort of the way. You know, I, everyone in there is with quarters because they all have work to do. I said, I got it. And I phoned the studio and I said, look, I got 400 extras out here yelling Ghostbusters. You better clear, you better clear the name. <laughs> we can't do a second take. We can't do a second take of this. Well, the so, other thing about the, the and this was a great summer for the movie business because this was the summer of Indiana Jones two yeah. was the end of summer of Gremlins, um, but Ghostbusters had, and this this was really MTV's heyday where you had that Ray great Ray Parker video with all the celebrities. Yeah, well, what happened is we we got the song at the last minute. We went back to New York to for the press screening. No, I think for the opening. That seems impossible. Yeah, we'd already done the song. It was in the movie, but we hadn't done a video. We went back to New York. We were all there, and I think it was for the press junket. And Ivan, we they hired a guy to sort of produce it. And Ivan had the idea, we're going to go around and get everybody we know between us, amongst us, to say Ghostbusters. And, you know, we did it. I mean, we crashed back in L.A. I remember we crashed the set of uh, some movie with Eddie, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, I forget which, which John Candy was in. And just to get John to say, you know, Ghostbusters to the <laughs> camera. And uh, uh, I'm actually in that video, my wife and I. She was in New York, I guess, for the press junket. And, and we're the people who pop up behind the, behind the soap and yell Ghostbusters at one point. So such such an inventive campaign, and yeah. and you know the the movie just flew flew. I mean, it was such a, a huge hit. Um, now I want to jump ahead. Now, there, you guys have been involved in so many great movies. In fact, I was going to talk to you briefly about um, the state of comedy in America today because you guys kind of I, I don't know if you, you you and the Zuckers were doing it, but. You guys did a lot of family comedies that the whole audience, the whole family could see. You could bring your grandmother, you could bring your 10-year-olds. And today, 
and this is personal for me because I've been writing comedy, trying to get out there and sell comedy. It seems like the kind of fan, and, and it's sadly we lost Ivan and um, you've retired. I mean, that's a big chunk of the comedy world to just go hasta la bye-bye and there's nothing replacing it. Uh, it seems I'm like a sorry, big I, vacuum. I, I think you're getting knowledge, Steve. First of all, we were making- I'm getting old? <laughs> we were making very edgy, edgy. We were always pushing the envelope. So, you know, I mean, I even made animals. You know, but, and, but you still could you could still it wasn't as raunchy as the comedies of today when comedies oh, think, do get I'm made. Sorry, today. I disagree. I mean, really? some raunchy companies today, but there's lots of family comedies still. And and we were accused of exactly older people accused of exactly what you're saying. Oh, really? Preston Sturges didn't make movies like this. He didn't have to have, <laughs> he, you know, he didn't have to have those kind of jokes in it, you know, Uh uh, well, you, you, we, we you, would we would always push the edge of PG as much. And look, a lot of our comedies that I worked on with Ivan went over the edge. You know, we're our you know we made our rated comedies too. I mean, we would have to pull them back sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Well, there is the scene in Ghost. There is the scene in Ghostbusters when uh, <laughs> when uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver's character is yes. is writhing on the bed. That that just it was just so much fun. Um, let me let me pull up another title real quickly because I know we we can't talk all night, which we probably could. Uh, but you I got to edit up. this. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll pull up uh, another title here. Yeah. So private parts with Howard Stern. It's interesting that Howard Stern has only made one movie, and yeah. it was Private Parts. And but, it's certainly uh, not a family movie. That was definitely not a family movie. And that's when you guys were pushing the envelope. Uh, actually, you were kind of uh, tearing the envelope in seven pieces. But how did that come about? Uh, Ivan was a big uh, Howard Stern fan. And the book came out. And Howard had made a deal with someone else and it wasn't going through. I, I truly can't remember how we got together. But Ivan got the. I Sorry, I just can't remember whether who made the overture to who. I'm sure it was from our end or someone from, I truly don't remember uh, how the overture got made, but Ivan, we were, Ivan was very interested from the beginning and said, I'll get Lenny Bloom to write it. Uh, his old friend, Lenny. And Lenny went and hung out with Howard and read the book and wrote. And, and it was funny because like Lenny's wife was like the vice president of the University of Toronto. Here he is <laughs> making private parts. And, um, uh, I wasn't on the set, De uh, Danny. Uh, I, we, I was doing another movie. What we would do is when we had two movies going, Danny would go to one, I would go to the other, and we'd both get credit. Do you we remember both. which one you were doing? Yeah, I was doing a movie that I'm pretty sure what I was doing was a movie called Father's Day, which oh. looked like a short hit and was a big flop, as often happens. Uh, private parts looked iffier, but I was around you know, during the script phase. I was certainly around during the editing phase certainly around when we were screening it and things. Um, well, Howard Stern is is like uh, it's like a force of nature. Uh, I mean, uh, he's built a, an empire of the people who love his stuff from top to bottom. And having him as the star of it and you know, having a hit book was a big coup for you guys. Um, well, a lot of people hate him, too, or did in those days, especially. Uh, he definitely pushed the envelope. Ivan... I, it scared me a bit, to be honest. Ivan thought, got it right away, knew how to do this. 
And Lenny's a very sweet guy. So we ended up writing a slightly raunchy, but in its own way, very sweet movie. Right. Howard, right. Howard was great. He's really good in it, I think. Oh, yeah. And the movie's very clever. If you want to have fun someday, we had to do a next, we shot, did we do it later or not? We had to do a next brigaded version for cable television. So we shot special stuff for it, I think after the fact on video. So Howard would come suddenly come on screen and say, we can't show you this part on, on cable TV, but here's what happens. And then he, so it has extra really funny things on it. Oh, that's uh, funny. That's yeah, funny. It's, it's really, it's like, by the way, there are versions of Ghostbusters, which are slightly expurgated too. They've shown up in, which were done for TV. And they've shown up on some of the lays, some of the uh, video discs. Some of the well, uh, whether you guys were doing family or raunchy, not doing them now leaves a big vacuum in the business because we have a dearth of comedies now. And I, I just feel that, uh, as I tell everybody, we get superhero movies and a lot of depressing movies at the end of the year and not much else. Well, I've, I've seen a few funny movies. Not a lot, though. Well, no, but yeah, I, I agree. But it's not like, you know... When we were making those movies, people were saying the same things then, honest. You have to trust me on this. Really? It's like, I'm laughing because I was watching a DVD with a, 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 a audio track with a critic and the star of the movie and the DVDs, right. from like, DVDs from like the year 2000. And it's a movie from the 50s. And the, the critic keeps saying, they don't make wonderful movies like this anymore. What's wrong with them? They keep making movies where there's sex all over them. It's, people have been saying this for 30 years, trust me. Well, having just watched Poor Things. Yeah. Uh, it's they pretty certainly, funny. <laughs> they, it just one of the most inventive movies. And I, I probably, uh, I believe it'll be best picture, but uh, Oppenheimer will give it a run for its money. Well, I, I, think American I, fiction, I think American fictions, you've gone. I'm sorry? You've disappeared from my screen. I've got a still of you now. Okay, I, I apologize. Oh, yeah. Don't I, worry, it's uh, you look good. Um, I think American I, fiction is pretty funny. Oh, I, I enjoyed it enormously, as I did um, uh, Holdovers. Now, the last movie I want to talk to you about, I thought was a really terrific movie. Yeah. And a movie that is is not, it's a football movie, not really a football movie. It's about the characters on draft day. That This was a fascinating movie. How did this co movie come to you guys? Uh, the two guys who wrote the script who had never written a movie or never had a movie made before, and I'm, this is terrible, I have to look their names up. And, uh, but, um, and they're really nice guys. Uh, look it up for me, will you? And leave. I will. Story. I will absolutely. I mean, I could do it here. It's. Uh, I mean, I spent a lot of time with them. Scott Alexander, and oh, Larry Larry Krasuski. No, 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 not them. No, no, no. no. It's Hang on um, one second. Joseph, somebody, Joseph, and sorry, this is terrible because I know these guys. Please leave this out of the podcast. I am going to put it up right now and. It is written by Rajiv Scott Rothman and Rajiv Joseph. Joseph, yeah, Rajiv Joseph and Scott Rothman, and they had met in a class. I mean, uh, Rajiv was a fairly well-known playwright. Scott had done some TV work. They met in, I think, a screenwriting course of some sort, and they decided to write. They were talking football. They're both fans, and 
They said, what's the most expensive, interesting thing? And they said, draft day. It all takes place in one day. And they wrote this script and it, it made the rounds in Hollywood. And I think it was on the blacklist, which I'm sure, I think it may have been number one on the blacklist. And they came out to Hollywood and they met people and they told the story, which I think is, is really true. Is they went to visit a famous producer who said, look, you guys are good. This is a great script. No one's ever going to make this script. There's no way this script is going to be made. And they went to see Ivan. And the reason they said that, they had a good reason, which is that, you know, most of the money for movies now comes from overseas. Nobody overseas wants to see a movie about American football, never mind a movie about draft day. So you're really limiting your potential income when you make a movie that's, you know, about draft day or about football in general without a lot else going on in it. And they went to see Ivan and Ivan said, I love this script. I'm going to get it made. They were really, and he did. And we found people to help make it, rewrote the script a bit. Uh, was, was Costner brought in fairly early or was he a last minute? Oh, he wasn't last minute. There weren't a lot of people, you know, there weren't a lot of other people we thought of. We thought of a couple he, of his, It's one of his best films and it's well, a very, it's, very sharp film. It's a very sharp film. I was surprised. I, I'd seen it once on TV and the color was washed out and they were showing it the wrong aspect ratio. And I thought, this isn't too good. And then the other day, then a few months ago, it was on TV and they were showing it in the right aspect ratio with good color. And I happened to watch the last half hour and I couldn't stop watching. I mean, I've seen the movie really a lot. It really works. The last, last half hour and the whole movie really works. In fact, I've been disappointed that uh, when people, when Chadwick Boseman died, people weren't saying more about, they were talking about all the movies he starred in, but he's great in draft day. I mean, he really brings that, that character alive. Everyone in it's great. All the acting in it's really good. It's got really sharp dialogue. Ivan was really pushing it. Uh, I don't care. I don't, I'm, I mean, Ali Bell, who was producing with me, knew way more about football than I did. And she dealt with the NFL. Um, yeah, I mean, the NFL was all over that film. Well, yeah, we had to get their cooperation. And as long as we didn't show people getting their brains knocked out, I think, they were okay with it. I mean, it's, it really makes football look like fun. It's a really good movie. It's a very limited appeal. A lot of people are not going to watch it, you know, I think. Because it is, it, it, as I said, I don't care that much about football. And I think it's really good. But it's a hard sell for people who, you know. But play, it did, it did pretty well, didn't it? I think it did okay. Not great. It did okay. I mean, it was a reasonably low budget. It wasn't like a, an indie, really cheap film, but it wasn't a, wasn't well, a lot. It, I, speaking of low budget, it says the budget was 25, which is pretty low these days for a studio. Well, people make movies for a million. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's... nowadays with cameras, the way things work, you know, I have very little patience with people saying, no one will give me money to make a movie. If you want to make a movie now, you can do it. It's Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very when true. When I was a kid, even when you were a kid, you couldn't even make a 16 millimeter movie without thousands of dollars. You had to buy film, you had to buy a cam, you know, you had to rent a camera. Nowadays, people make great films on their phones. Well, here's the big question, though. You can make the movie cheaply, but if there isn't any name actor in the movie, it's very hard to get a distributor interested. I agree, but that's the other thing. You know, you almost don't need distributors anymore. I mean, I'm talking in the real nitty gritty of, like when I, when I was interested, first got really interested in movies, and I'd think, 
this is crazy. Jean-Luc Godard is making movies for under a million dollars, for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know there are a couple of million people in the world who want to see them. Why doesn't this pay off? Well, nowadays it actually can't. You know, you can put a movie, you know, you can sell a movie. Well, you can create your own streaming channel. I mean, That's there's, right. there's, there, there is technical stuff there. I think you're right. You're absolutely right. And if right. the movie's good enough, people find out, I think. I mean, maybe there's a couple of great movies out there I've never heard of, but. So I said earlier yes. that you were retired, but I look yes. on your IMDb Pro page and it shows you have films in development. Are you still developing movies? No, that's bullshit. IMDb, IMDb drives me nuts. It claims I'm, the film I'm most known for is one of our bigger flops. It uh, has me down for films uh, my name is not on. Uh, I, my name is on the last couple of Ghostbuster movies, not the latest one, I think. And but I had very little to do with them. It's almost I'm I'm a pr producer emeritus. You're I see I see. I'm still friendly well, with the guys, and I'm happy to you know I'm happy to give my two cents worth, and that's about what it's worth. No, it's the, the it's it, you've always had good advice to me. Well, we've been listening to Joe Medjuk talk about his work with Ivan Reitman. We learned about his early days in the business, which is always fascinating to my readers because we all have our early stories about how we first discovered movies. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Uh, we're on all the podcasts. Uh, we're soon to be on YouTube. And if you're interested in any questions about the show or you want to have any suggestions for topics, please reach out to me, Steve, J-A-Y Rubin at gmail.com. And thank you so much, Joe, for being part of our show today. And this is our 100th broadcast, so it's a milestone of our own. And happy to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to see you again, Steve. Um, off the record, I hope you're going to edit out all those things I forgot. <laughs> I, I, I will, we will definitely work on that. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much.